Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Colonel Philip Shue. So, Colonel Philip Michael Shue was a United States Air Force psychiatrist stationed at Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, a 26-year decorated veteran. Born on July 22nd of 1948, he was raised in Brookville, Ohio, and graduated from Wisconsin in 1970 before entering the Air Force. After officer training school, Shue was selected for navigator training at Mather Air Force Base, California, and earned the honor of distinguished graduate. Friends described him as a low-key, soft-spoken, mild-mannered, and very laid-back. Among the many awards and decorations achieved by Shu was the Meritus Service Medal with two oak leaf clusters, a Commendation Medal, an Achievement Medal, a Joint Meritus Unit Service Award, an Organizational Excellence Award with one oak leaf cluster, the National Defense Medal with Bronze Star, the Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, an Air Force Overseas Long Tour, Longevity Service Award Ribbon with four oak leaf clusters, a Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Award Ribbon with Bronze Star, an Air Force training ribbon, the United Nations Medal, and the NATO Medal. Philip then met his second wife Tracy back in 1988 while both were stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, Philip being involved in a bitter and acrimonious divorce from his first wife Nancy at the time. Tracy stated, and I quote, he didn't talk a lot about his first wife other than to say there was not any love in the marriage, end quote. But Phil's thoughts were never far from home. In a video he sent to his wife Tracy, Shu seemed a picture of happiness content with both his career and his marriage. His new life with Tracy seemed so much better than his old one with Nancy. Tracy stated that, and I quote, he was very relieved to be out of that marriage, end quote. Tracy stated that, and I quote, he was very relieved to be out of that marriage. He explained that Nancy wanted everything, and she got pretty much everything. He did say that she liked to spend a lot of money. He would say it in that way. Money that they didn't have, end quote. However, all was not as picture-perfect as Colonel Shu made it out to be. As part of the acrimonious divorce settlement the year prior, Nancy had taken out two life insurance policies on him valued at $1 million that were in her name only. Beginning in the late 1990s, Phil started demanding that Nancy cancel the policies. She refused, saying she couldn't afford to. Tracy said that her husband became fearful of Nancy after receiving a letter, an anonymous warning, saying, you may be in danger. Tracy said that, and I quote, it was an anonymous letter that said essentially that a person overheard a conversation between Nancy Shue and Donald Timpson, her current husband, and that they were plotting to have her murdered for the insurance money, end quote. At the time of Philip Shue's death, Donald Timpson was an active duty Air Force pilot. Shu wrote to his ex-wife Nancy, confronting her about the warning he'd received, reportedly again insisting she drop all life insurance coverage on me, adding, I feel helpless to prevent my eventual murder if you hire good assassins, end quote. So what did Nancy do about these allegations in those notes? Apparently, Tracy claimed that Nancy said that she was not responsible. 
Philip then attempted to have the policies cancelled in 2000 and seemed concerned that they may pose a motive for somebody to do him harm. He told an insurer in an August 20 dated letter that they should thoroughly examine my death for evidence of foul play, even if on the surface the cause would appear natural or accidental, end quote. My former wife and her husband would prefer I die of natural causes. However, the longer I live, the more tempting it becomes for them to act on their plans for my murder. He wrote to the USAA Life Insurance Fraud Division. They would not have to continue paying premiums and could immediately collect on two $500,000 policies, end quote. His concerns may have been connected to strange notes and threatening letters he began to receive in May of 1999. Shu told his wife of the letters and informed his superiors, who seemingly dismissed them as anything to be concerned about. Which seems bizarre to me. I mean, you have letters claiming that someone may be planning to do you harm, and the first thing they do is dismiss them as nothing to worry about? I'm telling you, the letters were not just nothing to worry about. For example, in one, a person purporting to be the colonel's friend tells him, and I quote, Dear Dr. Shu, please read this letter. You may be in danger. I'm writing because I remember you as such a kind and caring doctor, and I can't just sit by and not help you by telling you what I know. I'll try to keep it short so you're certain to read it. A friend of mine who worked with Donald Timpson, your ex-wife's husband, told me some scary things. I don't know Donald Timpson or your ex-wife myself. Sorry, I don't even know her name. My friend told me that they wish you were dead so they could collect life insurance. I don't understand why they would have life insurance on you, but that's what my friend told me. My friend thinks they may actually be planning something. I don't know if they would actually hurt you, but please be careful. I had to write. If I didn't, I couldn't bear the thought of something bad happening to you that I could have prevented by telling you what I heard. If I hear anything more specific, I'll let you know. Please be careful. I'm sorry to worry you, but I just could not write and find out later that I could have stopped a bad thing from happening. End quote. The writer of this note, the friend, was never identified, and to this day, their identity and the contents of this letter remain disputed. Nancy and her husband at the time of Shu's death tried to say that Colonel Shu forged this letter himself and that he'd been depressed, paranoid, and suicidal. There's no proof that he forged the letters, and their suspicion is based on the fact that the letters were typed instead of handwritten. The last message Colonel Shu received from the anonymous friend was the short and cryptic note, quote, The plan is now delayed, but not cancelled. Be careful. I can't identify myself because they may find out and stop letting information slip, end quote. Thing is, an even more sinister event took place a month later. A laptop containing a near-complete master's thesis simply vanished. My understanding of the situation was that it was stolen while Colonel Shu was on campus, and he told campus security about the theft, and approximately three days later, it mysteriously turned up again with a dire warning on it, claiming that he wasn't to tell anyone about it being stolen or he would be harmed. He never told anyone, to my knowledge, about the return of his laptop. However, on further examination, things got even more bizarre, because it turned out the computer had been wiped to the point that nothing on it could be recovered, which means someone did something on that computer that they didn't want anyone to find. What exactly they were doing on the computer and how this connects back to the colonel's death remains unknown, even to this day. Also worth noting was that Colonel Shu and Nancy's son had been written out of the will, and both Nancy and the son had a lot of debt. Nancy's new husband had a confirmed alibi on the day of the death of Colonel Philip Shu, but the son did not. This, to my knowledge, was never really investigated or looked into to any great degree. 
On April 16th of 2003, Colonel Philip Shu left his home for work. Two hours later, on the I-10, traffic was moving well out of San Antonio, Texas, and nothing was amiss. That was until suddenly and violently a tan-colored Mercury Tracer swerved straight into the median. The car bounced for well over 1,000 feet, becoming airborne and then smashed back onto the highway. Yet still, it wasn't over. Landing correctly on its wheels, the vehicle continued to cruise down the road for miles before veering off to the right and smashing into a cluster of trees. The 54-year-old would be found dead in his car, the driver's side caved in, and apparently causing him a fatal head injury. Now, the thing is that upon inspecting his body, it was pretty clear this wasn't a normal car accident. Among the things that couldn't be attributed to the accident, he had a 6-inch gash on his chest with the skin removed and what looked like several hesitation marks near it. His left ear was cut to the bone and one of his fingers, the pinky on his left hand, had been removed. It is said with surgical precision. There's also the fact that both of his nipples had been cut cleanly off and there was also duct tape hanging from his boots and wrists, showing that he had been bound at some point. His wallet and hospital badge were missing and whoever grabbed him left a money clip with $47 on it untouched. Now, the autopsy report, which I have read and seen, is a graphic but enlightening read. Here are some of the very interesting highlights. His chest laceration, amputated finger, and removed nipples were unrelated to the car accident, but it looks like the ear damage was as a result of the accident. One thing that has never been brought up in any articles related to this case and is only mentioned in the autopsy report is the fact that there's pretty clear evidence he had been wearing an absorbent diaper not long before the accident, but Colonel Shu wasn't wearing one at the scene and it was never located. The question remains, why was he wearing a diaper at all? There was also a significant amount of lidocaine in his blood and a very large amount of, and I am going to butcher this name, I do apologize, dip in hydramine, about five times as much as you'd get from a standard dose of two 25 milligram tablets. Both can function as topical anesthetics. Now, initially his death was ruled a suicide. Due to the fact that there was some lidocaine, a local anesthetic found in his system, they ruled the wound self-inflicted. Except, according to world-renowned pathologist Dr. Cyril Witch, it wasn't nearly enough to provide actual pain relief. There was also no injection marks on his body. His current wife also said that the night before he had used topical lidocaine on his chest due to itchiness from having his chest shaved for a stress test. It is entirely possible that due to having his chest cut open, any topical lidocaine on his chest could have ended up in his bloodstream. It would be a small amount though, like what was found. Now, lidocaine is an anesthetic. It causes a loss of feeling in the skin and surrounding tissues. It is used to prevent and to treat pain for some procedures. This medicine is also used to treat minor burns, scrapes, and insect bites. Now, interestingly enough, lidocaine, if injected intravenously, it may cause cerebral effects such as confusion, changes in vision, numbness, tingling, and vomiting. It can cause low blood pressure and an irregular heart rate. There are concerns that injecting it into a joint can cause problems with the cartilage. It appears to be generally safe for use in a pregnancy, and a lower dose may be required in those with liver problems. Now, these side effects could very well explain why his driving was so erratic on the day that Philip Shue died. Now, the other medication or drug that was found in his system, which I'm going to butcher this name again, I do apologize, diphenhydramine, on the other hand, is an antihistamine and sedative mainly used to treat allergies, insomnia, and symptoms of the common cold. It is also less commonly used for tremor in Parkinism and nausea. It is taken by mouth, injected into a vein, injected into a muscle, or applied to the skin. Maximal effect is typically around two hours after a dose, and effects can last for up to seven hours. Common side effects include sleepiness, poor coordination, and an upset stomach. 
Now, there were some very other weird aspects to this case, including the fact that none of his own fingerprints were found on the duct tape and no gloves were found in the car or on his hands. So, if this was a suicide, how did he manage to bind himself with duct tape and not leave any fingerprints on them? In fact, even more bizarrely was that there was nothing found on the duct tape at all. Also, none of the missing body parts were ever found in the car and no knife or blade was found either. And to this day, those body parts remain missing. Also, another interesting point is the nature of Phil's injuries do provide another interesting avenue of inquiry. Court documents showed that Nancy, his first wife, was a board-certified sex therapist who, among other things, had studied the practice of sadomasochism. However, it was never made clear whether this was ever looked into. Now, sadomasochism is the giving and receiving of pleasure from acts involving the receipt of infliction of pain or humiliation. Practitioners of sadomasochism may seek sexual pleasure from their acts. While the terms sadist and masochist refer respectively to one who enjoys giving and receiving pain, some practitioners of sadomasochism may switch between activity and passivity. Here's what Tracy had to say about this during her interview with Troy Roberts of 48 Hours Mystery. Quote, Do you believe that your husband was tortured by someone familiar with sadomasochistic techniques? Robert asks. Quote, I believe that the injuries that he sustained are consistent with an act of sadism, and they certainly are in sexual in nature, replies Tracy. Forgive me, Robert continues, but I have to ask this question. Did your husband have an interest in this fetish himself? No, he did not, Tracy says. And it's interesting that you would ask that question because you're actually the first person out of the entire five-year time frame that has ever asked me that question. And I do believe it is an appropriate question to ask. End quote. Ex-wife Nancy Shue told Air Force investigators that on the day Phil Shue died in the Texas car crash, both she and Don Timpson could prove they were seen at work in Florida. Even more bizarre was that she refused to take a polygraph test. Two months after her husband died, Tracy filed a civil lawsuit with Nancy Shue as a defendant, seeking to prevent Nancy from collecting the $1 million death benefit. Two insurance companies, USAA and Northwestern Mutual, were also named as defendants. Tracy claimed that they'd been warned about the threat on her husband's life and therefore had a legal duty to cancel the policies. As part of the lawsuit, Tracy's lawyers demanded that Nancy answer their questions, but during the deposition, she took the fifth. Lawyer Jason Davis quoted, Were you responsible for the death of Philip Shue? Nancy Shue quoted, On the advice of counsel and pursuant to the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, I assert my right against self-incrimination and refuse to answer this question on the grounds that any answers might incriminate me. End quote. Nancy Shue took the Fifth more than 20 times, refusing to answer any questions about murder or motives or, or torture. The military did issue a report, a 20-plus page document, called a psychological autopsy, which I've never heard of until this case. It turned out to be the single most damning evidence of suicide. Produced two years after his death, it concludes that Colonel Philip Shue had become depressed, irrational, and even paranoid in the months before he died. The report questions whether the warning letter was real, and it finds no evidence of another person being involved in Colonel Shue's death. In a videotaped deposition, the report's principal author, Dr. Gerald Donovan, says it all adds up to suicide, which I don't believe at all. Donovan declined a request by 48 Hours Mystery for an interview, however Colonel Shue's own doctor, the psychiatrist who was treating him at the time of his death, insists that Shue was not suicidal, which I agree with. Dr. Douglas Dion went on record with 48 Hours Mystery that Shue was responding to therapy and getting better, but Dion also said that six months before Shue died, he had experienced a dark and disturbing dream, a dream in which he imagined his car went out of control on the way to work and great violence was done to him." End quote. The psychological autopsy findings clearly hurt Tracy's cause that this was a murder case. In June of 2008, Tracy finally got her day in court. The civil lawsuit she filed was at long last ready for trial, but with some major changes. 
Most dramatically, Nancy Shu was dropped as a defendant, so was Northwestern Mutual. Only USAA Insurance remained as a defendant. In her lawsuit, Tracy insisted the company was liable for damages because it had refused to cancel the policy. The official finding that Colonel Phil Shu committed suicide did not affect the payment of his life insurance benefits. His first wife, Nancy, received $1 million, and Tracy received $1.8 million. The answers may not be forthcoming, but the questions remain. No law enforcement agency has ever named Nancy Shu or her husband as a suspect or as a person of interest in the case. The Kendall County Sheriff's Office has no plans to reinvestigate the case. Quote, there is no evidence to this point right now for us to say we're going to reopen the case, says spokesperson Lieutenant Louise Martinez. End quote. And despite Judge Palmer's order to change Colonel Shu's death certificate from suicide to homicide, Kendall County officials have refused to do so, questioning the judge's authority to make that determination. In June of 2009, the Texas Attorney General ruled Colonel Philip Shu's death certificate does not have to be changed. What happened to Colonel Shu seemingly began not long after leaving his marital home, his office being a 30-minute drive away with the Colonel never making it. Where he was, or who, if anyone he was with during that time, has never been discovered. So somewhere out there in America lies an as of yet unknown secondary crime scene that has never been located where this crime took place. The official cause of death remains, to this day, suicide. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on Unanswered Questions. Yet it is the alleged criminal activities of some guards and administrators that has shoved Frontera into the public spotlight. During the early 1990s, former prison employees made sensational allegations of widespread drug trafficking at the prison. They tied these charges of corruption to a pair of seemingly isolated incidents. The disappearance and subsequent murder of a Frontera guard, Jessalyn Rich, in 1984, and the controversial death of 25-year-old inmate named Terry Lucas some three years later. 